world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. That was Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer speaking about the Trinity nuclear bomb test in 1945. It was the culmination of a massive United States wartime effort that put science at the forefront of the national conversation. The results of the weaponization of nuclear fission technology have been nothing short of catastrophic for people living downwind of the Trinity test site and, of course, for those in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the cities bombed by the United States at the end of World War II. With the new Christopher Nolan film Oppenheimer headlining at the box office, science is once again at the center of the national conversation. For nine years after 1945, when the bombs were dropped, Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, was viewed as one of the world's preeminent public intellectuals. That all changed when individuals with vendettas against Oppenheimer orchestrated a hostile security hearing and stripped him of his security clearance. While this was devastating for Oppenheimer, it effectively froze scientists out of political activism for over 60 years. Speaking out politically killed Oppenheimer's career, so what chance would lower-profile scientists have of preserving their own reputations if they were similarly attacked for their political efforts? It took the rise of climate change denialism and deliberate disinformation to push scientists to run for elected office and engage with politics in ways unheard of since before Oppenheimer's public humiliation. Scientists were silenced in the political arena for more than 60 years. I spoke with Kai Bird, the author of the definitive biography of Oppenheimer, American Prometheus, about the effects of Oppenheimer's complicated legacy. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and this is Science. I'm joined by journalist, historian, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Kai Bird. The new Universal Pictures movie Oppenheimer, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, Catapult science, the ethics of scientific discovery, and the place nuclear weapons hold in our world to the forefront of the public conversation. And since Kai Bird has uh, authored, I should say co-authored, the book American Prometheus, which is considered pretty much the definitive biography on Robert Oppenheimer, I figured it would be a really special treat for our listeners to hear from Kai himself. So you co-authored this definitive biography with Martin Sherwin. He passed away in 2021, so we obviously can't hear from him. But I was wondering, what was the genesis of this book? Thank you for having me, Jess. This is fun to talk about the book. But uh, to answer your question, well, Marty Sherwin started this biography in 1980. He signed a contract, and he worked on it for 20 years. He just did an amazing amount of research, 
over 150 interviews and went to archives in this country and abroad and accumulated 50,000 pages of archival documents. But he never started to write. He, he sort of got biographer's disease, which is, you know, when you're the biographer and you're, you're just certain that there's one more archive and one more interview that you need to do before you can begin to write. Finally, in 1999, he came to me and suggested that uh, I should join him on his project. And Marty, very, he had a great sense of humor. He said, well, if you don't join me on this project, my gravestone is going to read, he took it with him. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> if you're a quantum physicist, you're not going to learn anything from this book. But you will learn a lot about Oppenheimer, the man. And he's, he's a fascinating figure. He's a mystery. Uh, he's a very complicated personality and uh, a scientist who loved French poetry and the novels of Ernest Hemingway. And he loved horseback riding in New Mexico and was so interested in the Hindu scriptures that he learned Sanskrit so that he could read the Gita in the, in the original. Anyway, he's, he's a, a wonderful figure and, and, quite complicated. Right. And and so this may be asking a lot, obviously, because you already wrote 700 pages on this exact thing, but would you be able to give us just a really broad sketch of um, why Oppenheimer occupies so much space in, in modern history? Just kind of put him in context. Yeah, well, you know, he, as a young man in his 20s, he was on the cutting edge of quantum physics in, in, in the 1920s. And uh, then he became a Berkeley physics professor after studying uh, theoretical physics in Germany. And then at the age of 38, he's selected by General Leslie Groves to become the scientific director of the Manhattan Project and builds this secret city in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico called Los Alamos and uh, builds the, the gadget, the atomic bomb, in uh, less than two and a half years. So he's the father of the atomic bomb, the sort of iconic historical figure that signifies, you know, the dawn of the atomic age. But then, you know, he, he's a hero in 1945. He's, his image is put on the cover of Time and Life. And then just nine years later, he's uh, destroyed, humiliated in a kangaroo court where his loyalty to the United States is questioned and he's eventually stripped of his security clearance. And then this is all the trial transcripts as such were leaked to the New York Times and he's publicly humiliated. He goes from being America's most famous scientist and public intellectual on scientific issues to uh, a non-entity, a pariah. And so this is what's really fascinating about his life story. That it's, you know, the triumph of the invention of this atomic bomb uh, that he was building precisely because he feared the Germans were winning the race to acquire this weapon of mass destruction in the midst of World War II. Then there's the tragedy of his downfall at the height of the McCarthy era, and he becomes, you know, the sort of chief celebrity victim of McCarthy witch hunts. I did read something that where Christopher Nolan asserted that Oppenheimer is the most important human to ever live. What do you, what do you make of that? And how did you like the movie? I'm 
Well, I, I think what Nolan means when he said that is that, uh, you know, Oppenheimer signifies the, the uh, dawn of, of the atomic age. And that's very significant because we are still grappling, trying to learn how to live with the atomic bomb. The story is not over, and it could still end tragically with Armageddon. Atomic weapons have not been used since Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, but it's possible that they could be used again. And Oppenheimer's life story is extremely relevant, particularly since he not only was he the father of the atomic bomb as such, directing the project that invents this weapon, but he immediately afterwards begins warning about the dangers to humanity posed by this weapon of mass destruction. Did you enjoy the adaptation of your work? I don't want to spoil it for viewers. I'll just say that I think it's a stunning cinematic experience, and it is indeed based on American Prometheus, this biography that Marty Sharon and I wrote on Oppenheimer. And I think it's historically faithful to the book and accurate. It's, a, it's an amazing film. Aside from the sort of stunning cinema of this three-hour movie, say that you know people are going to maybe go into the theater thinking that they're going to see a film about the atomic bomb, and, and then they're going to go out realizing they've seen a biography, a deeply biographical portrait of of a very mysterious man. It's a mystery story. Like any good biography, it's a mystery story. It's about the man, not the weapon. I think it's you know, just brilliant. In your opinion, uh, why haven't we seen any nuclear weapons used since the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Luck. Mainly just old-fashioned luck. Uh, because there have been some near misses, the Cuban Missile Crisis, a crisis in 1983 that is not very well known. You know, Oppenheimer himself warned in 1945, just three months after Hiroshima, he warned in a public speech in Philadelphia, he, he said that, you know, you might think that this weapon is very expensive because it costs $2 billion. 1945 to produce. But it's actually very cheap. And any society, however poor, anywhere in the world, any country that chooses to acquire these weapons can do so. There are no secrets. You know, the physics is known. It's just an engineering problem. And that is known too, how to do it. And it's cheap. And so, you know, he was predicting here we are with North Korea having an atomic bomb and Iran is getting one and India has one and Pakistan has one. You know, proliferation is a serious problem. And we may, the decades to come, find that more countries in the Middle East, for instance, will acquire these weapons, more countries in Europe or Asia. And every time another country acquires a weapon of mass destruction, the possibility of their use increases. 
I just, I wanted to ask for you on, um, as your personal understanding of science and government, World War II and, and nuclear weapons, how did all that change for you from working on this book in particular? Well, what made it compelling to Marty and, and me is that uh, is, is the downfall that happened after the triumph. The fact that there is an arc to this story that he, that Oppenheimer himself, you know, was a very extremely enigmatic young man, had great ambivalence about what he was doing. And then nine years after his triumph, he is humiliated in this McCarthyite kangaroo court. And that's what is just astonishing. It's an amazing story that that this happened in America in 1954. But it uh, suggests, looking back on it from our, our vantage point today in the, in the uh, Trump era, uh, I would argue that the story is extremely relevant. It explains Donald Trump. The seeds of Donald Trump were planted during the McCarthy era. And we're now sort of reaping the consequences of that all these many years later. In in my learning about Oppenheimer, it seems like his views evolved, uh, his positions evolved as he understood situations on greater levels with more depth. So would you would you call that an accurate assessment? And um, what prompted him to create unfortunately, unwittingly, so many enemies who were really resistant to the idea that a scientist's views could evolve over time. Oppenheimer had a tendency in his personality. He could be very patient and sweet with his students and with strangers that he encountered on the street. He was ex an extremely polite and, and uh, dignified man. And yet he could, when confronted with people in authority or people who presumed to be on his level or presumed to know physics when they didn't, he could be extremely rude and cutting and, <laughs> and arrogant. And he, so he made quite a few enemies in powerful places. And most particularly, he alienated uh, Louis Strauss, who was a self-made millionaire businessman who got himself appointed an admiral during World War II. And Strauss presumed that he knew a lot about the Manhattan Project. He had some peripheral involvement in it during the war. And he got Dwight Eisenhower to nominate him as chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission in 1953. And at the same time, uh, Strauss had become chairman of the Board of Trustees at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where, and he recruited Oppenheimer to become director of the Institute in 1947, and uh, thought that was a, a coup to be able to recruit the father of the atomic bomb to come to Princeton. But they they were like oil and water. They just clashed. They bad chemistry. You know, Oppenheimer was uh, of Jewish ancestry, but he'd been raised as a young boy in the Ethical Culture Society. He didn't really consider himself to be, you know, he certainly was not a practicing Jew. But 
Louis Strauss was. Strauss was a member of a conservative temple in New York, and he took his Jewishness very seriously, and he didn't understand why Oppenheimer didn't. Oppenheimer went out of his way to sort of be rude to Strauss and mocked him in a public Senate hearing one day in 1948 or 49. And then there were policy disagreements. So Oppenheimer was uh, always skeptical and a critic of the U.S. relying on nuclear weaponry as a defense. And he came out in 1949 after the Russians exploded their own atomic bomb and there was a sort of wave of hysteria in America about how to respond, uh, Oppenheimer opposed the development of the super the hydrogen bomb and uh, thought, you know, ar was arguing publicly, increasingly so publicly in 52, 53, that this was unnecessary, it was a waste of money, it was creating a, 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 a hydrogen bomb was creating a weapon that could only be used on huge cities um, and not, you know, that it wasn't a military weapon. And uh, Straws considered this to be evidence, Oppenheimer's opposition to the hydrogen bomb, Straws considered this to be evidence of, of perhaps um, disloyalty or subversion, or uh, and he dug into his FBI file. He had access to that kind of classified information and, as the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, and uh, he knew all about from the FBI file. He knew all about Oppenheimer's left-wing activities in the 1930s, and so he jumped to the conclusion. Um, that Oppenheimer was a, a danger, a danger to the national security state, a danger to the development of the hydrogen bomb, and maybe he was a spy. And so Straws actually orchestrated the uh, 1954 security hearing that brought Oppenheimer down. And he did so in a very nefarious sort of conspiracy. So this kind of is a nice segue into talking about the growing distrust of expertise and scientists in general that we've seen in the U.S. over the last decade or so, but very much so during the, the previous presidential administration. It seems like this has happening uh, quite a bit in the U.S., but also to a lesser degree around the world. This sort of expertise is not wanted or needed, and scientists aren't seen as as the same kind of trustworthy figures that they were several decades ago. So from your perspective, what are the lessons that we should be amplifying from Oppenheimer's, both his scientific innovations and from the tragedy of the end of his professional career as a government scientist? Yeah, well, I, I think what happened to Oppenheimer in 1954 sent a message to scientists everywhere in, in the U.S., but around the world, that if you are a scientist, you have to be very careful and beware of getting on the, the public stage and, and uh, presenting yourself as a public intellectual with expertise because people can come after you and 
it sent a message that scientists, you know, need not be trusted. And Lord, you can look back at what's happened during the recent pandemic, where public health officials were, their views were questioned, and their, their authenticity and honesty were brought into doubt. And I think, you know, the fact that this can be done so easily, um, that so many Americans can uh, be distrustful of scientists and of ex you know, expertise, uh, this is deeply rooted in our culture. And it's a, it, I think you can trace it back to what happened to Oppenheimer in 1954. Um, you know, he at the time was, widely respected and given a platform to talk about public issues. And today, I don't think you can go look around the country and see, you know, that there are very few um, scientists of that caliber who have a, a, a public standing. They, you know, scientists have sort of trained themselves to speak only about their very narrow lane, their, their expertise in, in a very narrow scientific sense. And yet we need these people who understand the world, a world in which we're drenched with technology and science. And, and these are precisely the people that can help us to figure out how to manage this world, how to live with not only the atomic bomb, but now artificial intelligence. And, and uh, they're, they're exactly the kind of people that we should be um, listening to and, and encouraging them to participate in, a, in, a, in civil discourse. But instead, we leave that debate to elected politicians who often don't have any expertise at all. So it's, it's a conundrum. Yeah. And, and I mentioned to you before we started recording that I had run for U.S. Congress in 2018 as a scientist, which garnered a lot of news coverage because it was seen as so unusual. And, and so I, I think it's unusual because Oppenheimer's um, attack, the attack on him um, professionally had such a chilling effect on political activism by scientists. So is it, is it your view that scientists should be more engaged in politics and, and the public conversation today um, in spite of what happened to Robert Oppenheimer? Yes, absolutely. I think scientists should be encouraged to run for public office and, uh, and to write op-ed pieces and uh, you know, help to explain to the general public the sort of scientific method, the process, the fact that you know, we're all scientists are experimenting, that public health officials are constantly trying to look at the evidence. And of course, they change their minds at times because there's new evidence. And, uh, you know, there, there is no one truth, but there is uh, a constant effort to uh, understand 
the science and the physical world around us. And that takes, um, you know, the, the scientific method of testing and experimenting and being open to new evidence. And this seems to be a test that the that most Americans don't understand. And that makes it difficult for us to have a, a, a political conversation that's based on reality. If you could direct listeners to one thing, to get a real sense of the man himself, what, what would you point them towards? I discovered sort of late in our research and writing that Anne Wilson Marks, who was the Oppenheimer's last secretary at Los Alamos, was still alive. And so I I looked her up and she told me the following story. She said that one day she was working, walking to work with Oppenheimer. And this was in July of 1945, just after the Trinity test had successfully demonstrated the first atomic bomb. They're walking together and suddenly uh, Oppenheimer is shaking his head and muttering to himself, those poor little people, those poor little people. And Anne stopped him and said, Robert, what are you talking about? What are you saying? And he looked at her sadly and said, well, you know, the Trinity test shows that this gadget now works and we know it's going to be used on a whole city in Japan. And most of the victims of this weapon will be women and children and old men, civilians. That's a whole city because the weapon needed to be tested on a large enough target to show its strength, its destructive power. He's thinking, you know, tragically of what's about to happen to these poor little people. I conveyed this story to Marty after I did the interview, and he managed to look up and realized that in the chronology, this conversation that Anne and Robert had in July of 1945 must have been during the same week that Oppenheimer had actually briefed some of the bombardiers who were going to be on the airplane to drop the atomic bomb. So he was instructing them, actually, exactly how to detonate the gadget at exactly the right altitude so that it would have the most maximum destructive power on all those poor little people. So this is an astonishing man who can contain in his head these two two thoughts. In the same week, he can be doing his duty, carrying out his responsibilities as a scientist, conveying how to deploy this weapon. And at the same time, he can be worrying about the tragic human consequences of what he's doing. So he's very conflicted. This is admirable because it shows, you know, it gives him his humanity. We are the Union of Concerned Scientists. So I'd like to ask all of our guests, why are you concerned? I hope that this film and the book, of course, will uh, prompt people to have a, a new conversation about the importance of atomic weaponry, and uh, how we should be figuring out how to survive in the atomic era, and how to regulate these weapons of mass destruction, and uh, also to reflect on the 
the, uh, the major and troubling issue of McCarthyism that has, um, you know, that plagued our, our country back in the 1950s and still does to, to this day. I think that's a, a fair set of concerns there and uh, very valuable for us to, to look at in this day and age. So thank you so much for making time for the conversation and also for your work preserving vital parts of our shared human history. Uh, this is the kind of thing that should never be forgotten. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do your work and to speak with me about it, Kai. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Elliot Negan for arranging the interview with Kai Bird, to Omari Spears for web help, and to Anthony Iring for media magic. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and I'll catch you next time, science lovers. <laughs>